0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N com.
1: And uh, that's kind of how I started the magazine, besides working with Pete, some of my friends said, oh boy, there should be another surfing magazine. Bet you couldn't do that, R.G. And I just took it kind of a dare and got Pete to start it up and it just kind of rolled from there. And that's how I got involved in a lot of things like that. This
0: is the voice of Richard Graham, the founder of Surfing Magazine.
1: The rest of the guys were were, um, really good at what they did, but they weren't well-rounded enough. Like there was a, a famous surfer, Tommy Lee, I don't know if you remember. No. They called him Cannonball Lee because it one of Bruce Brown's movies. He was riding Waimea by himself in the early morning and lost it. And he rolled like a cannonball right down the wave, and that's how he got his name. And we were sitting in a bar in Aspen, Duke Boyd again, and Tommy and some other friends, and we talked about who's the baddest ass on the planet. And then everybody, oh, Muhammad! no, there's a guy, there's this guy. So uh, we did an event called the World Series of Martial Arts Championships. And it was called No Rules. Because if you're a boxer and I'm a wrestler, I don't want to fight by your rules. You don't want to fight by mine, so we'll have no rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only rule was that you couldn't strike to the groin or gouge out your eyes. And you had to pad all the areas you struck with. We brought in Thai, the Thai kickboxing champions out of Thailand, and these guys, you know, use their knees and elbows Shins. and all that stuff. Yeah. And, but they had to pad them, mm-hmm. and then we put them in the ring with a guy from kung fu, guy from China, and see who the best. And so the all the idea came out of who's the the best fighter in the world, if there was no rules, who's going to win that?
0: And that has become a huge sport now, obviously. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like the exact beginning of the well, mixed martial arts. Well, it really of was, today.
1: and it's not anything they publicize. And um, I've got a friend that uh, knows the gentleman who runs that. I forget his name right now. It's UFC. Yeah.
0: Dana White. Dana White. Yeah.
1: And. Um, they're talking about maybe getting together with him and giving him some of our pictures from the early oh, okay. days. And um, I've also been considering that as another book for me. Oh, wow. Because uh, I have all these guys. They were just fabulous fights. Sure. Uh, yeah.
0: And how were they documented? Was it video uh, filmed at all? or uh,
1: Some. And then I've got to find a box in my garage. So. <laughs> Where <laughs> so, all
0: that exists? Uh, yeah.
1: And Tommy passed away. Um Recently, the last couple of years, and I haven't been able to find his ex, who must have a whole stack of stuff. But I'm going to work on that uh, in the next two weeks.
0: Well, you got your hands uh, full.
1: I want to include it in my new book. That's called the Ride, and that's part of it. It's uh, when you just say the ride. It's a very uh, broad subject, but it's a a colloquialism. Yeah. Uh, the surf ride. Was it the motorcycle? Was it the ski ride? Was it the ride of life, yeah. what, what is it, you know? Like uh, I had a spot that said something about coming down to the beach, and I was thinking of this here at Crescent Bay. Yeah. But in the early morning, warm water, catching a wave, and uh, get waking up and getting your exercise, yeah. and you know, uh, that's what it's all about, the ride. Yeah. And that was part of it, the lifestyle, not just riding the wave. Right. So that became a nice, uh, a nice title and I have to uh, credit Steve Pesman for that. Oh, really? Yeah, well, Steve's a genius. Uh, he gets real embarrassed when I say that, but uh, I think so. Yeah. He was the best caption writer that ever came along. I hired him work on our magazine to do captions hmm. he's got an eye for seeing how many letters can go under a word <laughs> under a picture and then writing this poetry yeah uh, and, and of course his other talents are the articles and his philosophy on things but he came up with that he said you call it the ride I had the first title was the golden era of surfing the 60s and 70s but my partner uh, had put that into his book and then Duke Boyd did it in his book he's got one called the legends uh, from the golden age of surfing so I had to back away from that so I got to give uh, Steve credit for the ride but I have uh, embraced it and yeah. feel that uh, it's a, well we've got a whole page of slogans for the ride oh, okay that'll be able to be used well
0: Welcome to today's episode of Surf Splendor. I'm your host, David Scales. Today we'll be hearing from Richard Graham about the founding of Surfing Magazine, his involvement in launching the very first international surfwear brand, and his new book, The Ride, which documents the many journeys... The people with whom he was surrounded during a very influential period in surf history. We're glad you're here and we hope you enjoy today's show. As if everybody here would know exactly what I was talking about. Talking about diamonds on the soles of shoes.
1: 64, I founded Surfing Magazine, put a staff together, and uh, now we're in 2014, and it's 50 years later, and uh, Surfer's Journal, uh, Steve Pesman, who I know has been on your show, um, did an article on me. And pulled. I had to pull out all my old pictures that are 40, 50 years old out of the garage, and that kind of got things started. And uh, several people said you should do something with these pictures. And then the 50th anniversary came up, and that was the uh, kind of the background to get started with it. I, I had some, uh, well, I had a lot of pictures of the greats out of the 60s and the 70s, and I did a lot of traveling for the magazine. And uh, so I had quite an inventory, 4 or 5,000
0: pictures from wow. those days. And, uh, and they're all just on paper, hard copies, or do you have the slides? Transparencies.
1: And... Okay. And in some cases, contact sheets okay. with negatives. Uh, and then some black and white prints that had been used in the magazine. Robert Peterson, um, I worked for him for a long time. You know, he's... Uh, He's no longer with us, Uh, bless Bob. He um, started me off uh, doing a Peterson surfing yearbook. Okay. Back in the early 60s. And um, I was able to convince him that uh, he should do a more substantial book. And then we went uh, from annuals to quarterlies to bi-monthlies. And then he gave up on it because of uh, of the structure of the company uh, and oh, okay. where he was placing his finances. Because he had Hot Rod and Teen and Motor Trend and uh, Skin Diver, Guns and Ammo, a whole lot, I think about 15 monthly publications. And he focused on uh, his hot ones at the time and ours was still growing. So I stepped out and started International Surfing Magazine and that's when I brought in Leroy Grannis. Um, as photo editor and also as a, uh, an associate editor. And I think our magazine really took off when um, I had an association with and got on staff, Steve Pesman and uh, Duke Boyd, uh, mm. who had founded Hang 10. And um, was, was Hang a,
0: 10 already founded at that time? Or it did was. that come later? It
1: okay. was, it was founded. And Duke was doing, uh, oh, a monthly article surfer and there was some talent there and he came to me with uh, well more than some talent Duke yeah, is sure. uh, really a sharp guy and uh, well an officiato of the sport but he uh, was those two guys coming aboard uh, really pushed our magazine up and then a twist of fate um, was I was in Australia and uh doing a story down there, I don't know if you remember the Fantastic Plastic Machine movie, I was on that trip with them documenting it. And um, Midget Farley, who was, uh, that year, was the world champion, the first world champion in 64. And this was about 66, I think. He came out, uh, pulled this board out of a bag, and it was like, wow, what is that thing? and it was actually the first uh, short board. Nobody had seen them and we had a wind and sea team that had kind of challenged a Sydney surf club to a little contest, you know, for part of the film. Yeah. And uh, he rode that board and it had a little V bottom on it and uh, since then Midget sent me all the measurements. Oh um, wow on that board, and and it was really the first uh, short board.
0: What were the measurements on that thing? Oh, gosh. Like uh, length, for example, how short? I don't recall. Six foot, six five? Uh,
1: It was about six foot, Okay. Midget wasn't a big guy, and of course the name Midget might point to that. (laughs) That's (laughs) a good point. But a great guy, and a fabulous surfer. He had won the Makaha contest, the world contest, and Australian championships in that period of time, and uh, we were good friends, and uh, still are. We still communicate, and uh, that was kind of the start of. Uh, well, I I raced back to America, put it into Surfing Magazine. This story it was the article is kind of legendary now. There's a surfboard revolution going on, mm-hmm. and we were lucky that. Uh, and the fact that Surfer didn't cover that. They were the number one publication in those days. We were the up and comers. Um, and they didn't cover that story and they weren't on that trip. And so we got eight months of shortboard when everybody was going that direction before Surfer mentioned it. Mm-hmm. And that brought our, our magazine up and our circulation went up and it's never dropped and it's still going today, the magazine. Yeah, sure.
0: What, can you talk about, um... What that board did for surfing and for Midget, like specifically how was Midget surfing on that board that was different than what the current kind of mood was?
1: Yeah, well, Midget's one of those guys who could surf any board and basically did, you know, sure. and he loved to try boards. He's still making boards in Australia. Uh, and he also uh, has a company that does foam for the industry down there. Um, and he could ride anything. So uh, he still talks about that board being experimental and it was the first, but it was a dog, you know. Mm. And he points to pictures says, see the water coming off that rail? That rail should be up higher and uh, I can make a smoother turn on it. And the board, uh, there was an evolution there of of that board. But the real thing was it uh, was the short, shortness of it because it allowed uh, guys to do up and downs and aerials and uh, some of the younger surfers don't know that we were doing that stuff back in the '60s when the shortboard came out but we were limited by the long boards and uh, you know we were through with the redwood area <laughs> yeah but the uh, foam boards and the lighter boards, but they still had all that length and you just couldn't do the maneuvers that the shortboard did. Me personally, I tried on a shortboard, uh, but I wasn't very good at that. I was an old-school guy, and okay. I just loved to set up a trim and go for it. You yeah. know? And Longboard, um, that was the style in those days. But the other guys came along and uh, really put that
0: together. And but, but you're right that I certainly don't think of aerials have being done back then, and I think a lot of people attribute it to kind of the 80s and specifically Christian Fletcher and a couple of other names. Um, Do you remember specific instances or specific aerials that guys did prior to that?
1: Well, it was more going off the lip and getting air. Oh, okay. And then getting back onto the falling wave and ride out to the bottom. Nothing like the aerials that are being done today. Okay. And it was really attributed to the transition from the longboard to the shortboard that made the guys a little freer and uh, allowed them to experiment in ways that the old timers and the long boards hadn't been able to do sure. just because of technology. Uh, but I don't remember anything really specific. Uh, one of my guys that I've traveled with, like to Peru one time, was Paul Strau. Yeah. Uh, and Paul uh, was a guy that always rode high on the wave. In fact, I was looking at some pictures in the library over at uh, Surf Heritage Cultural Center and uh, there was a lot, I covered Paul a lot in the magazine in those days, and I noticed at that time when I had, oh, say, 10 magazines out and the pictures of Paul, he was always riding high. And he said, you know? oh, you noticed that, huh? Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, that's how I could get my speed and I could get off the top with that. And mm-hmm. there were, a lot of guys were doing that, not because they were following Paul, but again, there was... Uh, an evolution and a release of trying new things. And Paul was right there with that. Of course, the Australians were also there, and there's been a debate for years about who did it first. Sure. Um, There was uh, McTavish and Nat Young, and Nat's famous uh, coming to America for the World Contest and winning it on his board called Sam, Mm -hmm. which was his version of the short board. But by me documenting my, uh, that trip to Australia with the revolution going on, it kind of put midget, uh, oh, let's just say uh, months ahead of... Predated uh, now. Yeah. Yeah. And then it gave me the advantage on surfing magazine uh, because the the big guys, uh, manufacturers in those days, you know, the Hobies and Deweys and Bings and... Uh, Greg Knowles, all those guys uh, had the major portion of their advertising in Surfer and then they would uh, work with us on a, oh, a a biannual basis or at a certain time when we ran a story of their writers. Um, but when we did, did this magazine, they uh, basically told John Severson that, He shouldn't run a story about short boards, because they had just shipped all their long boards into all their dealers across the country, and they didn't have any short boards, and it wouldn't be to the benefit of Surfer's advertising program to um, advertise against the product that they had in the store. And so we got about an eight-month reign on that, and then John obviously came in. He, He did the first, and... Really, a very good publication. We were just different. Uh, a couple of things I noticed was that uh, the East Coast wasn't getting any any coverage. So I did a lot of uh, articles on the key guys in the East Coast, and it's kind of funny that Kelly Slater comes out of you know small wave Cocoa Beach area, and uh, now he's got what 11 or 12 uh, world 11, championships. Yeah. Uh, but there were a lot of guys like that. Uh, Bruce Faluzzi's tabling, Claudie Coggins was just a fabulous athlete and selected uh, was a baseball and football player in high school, but mm. selected surfing and all those guys Gary proper was another guy that uh, did very well, but uh, I saw those guys as the key to the East Coast and then you take a quick look at population and you go, well, I'm trying to sell magazines to the population. There's you know three times the numbers of people back there, and so I covered a lot. Uh, Severson didn't cover as much as I did. It um, uh, wasn't that he was void of that, but it wasn't his primary, because his manufacturers were West Coast and West Coast surfers and riders and all that. And then, years later, um, 2006 uh, the East Coast guys remembered that what I had done on that and it was a purely a business decision. (laughs) Sure. Um, But then they voted me into the Hall of Fame, surfing Hall of Fame for the East Coast uh, for publicizing and uh, promoting their industry. Yeah. So that was cool.
0: Very cool for them to acknowledge that. Yeah. So let's, um, I want to kind of, ask more about that era I guess the 60s it would have been where Surfer magazine was the only publication or the first publication that existed and you talked about Rob Peterson mm-hmm. and I've seen Peterson's surfing the name and the title in the past who was Rob Peterson and well, what was his involvement in surfing I know you said he had a lot of other publications but what's his story well Bob Peterson
1: was um, a really A regular kind of guy that really made a success of his life and he went into the publishing. And you can imagine the total circulation of his publishing company when all those magazines I just mentioned, and there were more, you know, I didn't talk about sports car graphics and uh, cycle industries, uh, what was, well, he had a motorcycle publication, I forget the name now, but he covered all the branches of the sport, uh, auto sports and then threw in Skin Diver and uh, Teen Magazine, and he was one of the smartest, I learned a lot from him. Okay. Like he said, you just can't do it all yourself. When you get to the point you sit in the the top office, he said, you just hire the best people you can to do everything and give them direction. He says, uh, and that's what he did. He hired very good people to come in and blow that company up and rode the, Rode the wave, I guess, yeah. and uh, uh, he, I was, in that time, I was a young guy in the data processing department. I was his data processing manager before all the big computers. I worked for Remington Rand and set up systems in his
0: company. Was so, that for all the publications or just yeah, for the surfing? Yeah, uh, their okay.
1: subscriptions. Gotcha. They were all on punch cards in those yeah, days, like yeah. we had 60 women in a room punching cards Jeez. for all these magazines. Then running promotions, oh, one of the oil companies might want to get out a promotion on a new product so they'd buy our mailing list of all those publications and uh, I was in charge of getting those things, keeping them up to date and uh, renewals to renew the subscription which was the lifeline of publications
0: at that time. And how old were you at that time? Oh, I was about twenty-three. And were had you grown up surfing, or?
1: Um, I didn't get started in surfing till about nineteen fifty-five, something like that. And then I went into the Marine Corps in fifty-eight and fifty-nine, and came back and went to work for Remington Rand in about nineteen sixty. And then convinced Peterson that he didn't have a surf publication, and he did the yearbook in about sixty. Two maybe. Okay. And 63. So it's like 61, 2, and 3. We did an annual book and then started um, with um, more repetition
0: of uh, circulation. Let me ask um, Surfer was in existence at that time. Yeah. What was the idea behind doing a competing magazine? I mean, did you feel there was a void that wasn't being filled? I know you mentioned the East Coast thing, but... Well,
1: yeah. I, I still what I recognized was that Surfer was the established publication and they, they had uh, the following and readership of all the, let's just call them older established surfers. Okay. So I, I went after the young surfers mm-hmm. and uh, recognized again the East Coast and I recognized that when you get a young surfer, he you had not got a board, so he's going to buy a board or mm-hmm. he's going to buy a wetsuit. The other guys bought them, of course, uh, but they weren't dependent upon a purchase, so mm-hmm. I was able to build that into a story in my advertising program. If you wanna get the kid who's gonna buy a board next week, you should be in our magazine. Mm. And I also uh, knew how surfers work, cause I was surfing and had a lot of friends, and um, I didn't say don't be in surfer. I said you need to augment your advertising sure. program and be in both. I'm hitting the young guys, he's hitting the older guys, he's got a bigger circulation. But our editorial was different. And uh, we were doing things like um, health foods okay. and music and uh, a lot of the sidebars that surfers were into. And um, my art directors and so forth who weren't necessarily hot surfers all the time at the, at the um, level of of the yearbook, but they would always have to put in bikinis and they'd put in, uh, oh, hot hot rods turned surf wagons, you know, woodies, it was always a woody, what what do surfers carry their boards and convertibles and woodies, and so I I went along with all that because it was, uh, again, a little different audience. Saverson may have some of those pub, uh, those uh, Woodies in the background, or a picture of a guy leaning against it, or something. But he didn't show the the car itself and the yeah. wood on the interior and what kind of tires they were running and all that. So I borrowed a bit from Pete's uh, book and put it in uh, publications and put it into ours, and it was good. We even did an article in those days on marijuana, really, which was gosh, that was almost taboo. But um, what was the article about? Oh, it was just about uh, you know the what was considered benefits then and um, which has really been now more proven in those days was just a lot of opinion mm-hmm. and there were people for and against, and surfers were always known as guys who were walking around loaded all the time and frankly, that was the other part of our editorial package and our Positioning our magazine was to elevate the image of and the lifestyle of the surfer. You know, today I still look at the surfer as one of the greatest athletes on the planet. When you get a 60 foot wave coming in, a guy says, ah, I can't wait to get out there in it. The rest of people are running for high ground. Right. And uh, those athletes, they're just the best athletes. Who's going to do a two wave hold down at Jaws or something, right. you know? And uh, it, so we featured that kind of an attitude about it and started the uh, Surfing Hall of Fame, uh, Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, about 1966, I think the first one was. Uh, in fact, my new book has an article on that. Uh, and we inducted uh, Duke Kahanamoko as the first guy into the Surfing
0: Hall of Fame. And smart choice. <laughs> yeah, we did it at
1: Santa Monica Civic and the Palladium downtown wow. Hollywood. uh, and, uh the fun part of it was all surfers to get in had to wear a tuxedo uh, to get in. Wow. And, you know, that was like pulling teeth. Buzzy Trent came from Hawaii in his construction booth and we got uh, boots and we got him a, a tuxedo and there he was making speeches. It was really pretty cool. And uh, we didn't really realize how much fun that was because it was a lot of work sure. at the time. But uh, I have a picture of myself on the stage. Uh, with, uh, remember Adam West, who was yeah, Batman? He course. was the big guy in that year, and he came as the guest celebrity and passed out trophies for us. Wow. And had Duke, and Bud Brown was the other master of ceremonies, and myself. But it's a pretty classic picture when you look at it, of uh, uh, all of us giving an award to Dale Velze into oh, the yeah. Hall of
0: Fame, you know, that kind of stuff. So It sounds like, was it intentionally part of your objective to... Um, I know you said maybe break down the stereotype of surfers being loaded but it seems like with that event specifically it really opens it up to the general public as being more professional. Yeah. I mean if the guys are wearing tuxedos...
1: We approached it from an athlete, uh, from being athletes, mm-hmm. not just guys who uh, went to the beach every day and uh, uh, didn't have a job. And right. were, Really the surfers were known a lot as beach bums in right. those days. And there was some justification for that, too. There, were, there was a camp that uh, didn't ever want to work, just wanted to surf, and they still needed gasoline and food. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we wanted to present the other side of the, the guys. You know, like Greg Knowles, one of the most outstanding surfers, um, of all time. Now, people say, well, he just rode big waves. He wasn't much in small waves. Yeah, but while he was riding big waves, he also made movies. Um, He did uh, a lot of photography and made wonderful boards for um, all levels of surfing. He was the most rounded surfer. And then. You know the biggest waves in those days came up, and he went out and did it. Right. He went out and rode those waves. The first guy to ride Waimea, mm-hmm. rode the biggest wave ever at Makaha, and he's got buddies like Buffalo who will back that up, who saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he was doing all these other, um, oh, endeavors. Yeah. And there weren't many guys that ever did all that roundness. Uh-huh. And Greg was, on top of it, was one of the best characters you ever want sure. to meet in the, as a surfer. But he also helped my um, wanting to present, a, uh, all, let's call it the um, ver- diversify, uh, diversified um, talents of guys in surfing. And uh, Ricky Gregg, who passed away, who just recently, you know, was an aquanaut, mm-hmm. but he also won the Duke contest, and, you know, those are were, those were the guys that we um, concentrated on so that the public, and when we did things in public, like the Hall of Fame awards, uh, they could see that there was something on the other side of these guys who were going out there yeah. than just being beach bums.
0: Yeah, I mean, even with the guys that you said who were legitimate beach bums, there's still a tremendous amount of dedication and work ethic in terms of getting up early and consistently doing something over and over again yeah, that's, that I think a lot of people overlook. Yeah, you know? it's,
1: and that's a lot to do with the modern surfer. Mm-hmm. You, you take a guy like Kelly Slater, um, the current champion out of Australia, Mick Fanning. Right. Uh, those guys are, you know, on the other side of all that, leading the way yeah. with lifestyle and exercise and sleeping. And those days, and back in the other days, uh, 60s and 70s, it was party hardy at night and get out and ride the waves in the morning. Right. These guys, uh, they train like Olympic athletes. Right. There were very few guys that did that back in the day. Sure. Um, and we did articles on yoga in our book okay. too to spread those things out. Uh, the, the yoga part of it was training that all the guys do now for mental concentration, physical fitness, you know, yeah. all that. Uh, and there were a few guys um, that were doing that back in the day. But it, again, it made a, um, a nice platform for our editorial. And right. I think that Surfing Magazine today is still uh, doing that with uh, directing it towards the younger guy mm-hmm. because the older guys are either set in their way or they're willing to uh, try something new. Mm-hmm. The Younger kids have to do everything because they don't have sure. uh, the equipment and the lifestyle and all that and they're just coming in.
0: Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, let's talk about that transition or the, mag- the magazine transitioning. It was Peterson Surfing, obviously, and how did it evolve into being Surfing?
1: Um, what happened was uh, when, when Pete decided not to um, continue with the Surf magazine, uh he worked out a phase out program with me where i did a couple more issues to uh, take out our uh, to to uh, follow our commitment to our advertisers who are on different rates and so forth and in that time i uh,
0: moved to doing surfing magazine so the transition from peterson to surfing so you were at the helm of that
1: yes and I, um, I called it International Surfing, and I think it was, there was a subtitle on that publication called uh, Surf Action Around the World. Oh, okay. And after I sold it, I went off into another venture, but um, the, there were some guys in charge there. Ed Grevy is one of the guys I remember they took the International off and made it surfing. Got it. But it was the same publication, they just modified the title. And I think it had a little bit to do with them identifying with, not identifying with my magazine, but their own magazine and separated it from Surfer and Severson's magazine. Sure. So that's how that evolution went on and it's been surfing ever since.
0: When did that take place? When did you sell it and they changed the name? In the early 70s. Okay. So you Uh, had it running for a little less than 10 years, maybe 8 years or something?
1: Yeah, 8 to 9 years. Okay. And that didn't really count the Peterson Surfing Magazine, the annuals before that. Mm -hmm. But all that got me, uh, as a data processing manager, trained in how to become a publisher Sure. when I was... uh, my buddies in the building were all the publishers of the other magazines, mm-hmm. and they were always fascinated with surfing and the big waves and right. you know all that, uh, just as we were with Formula One car racing or um, that, those sports. In fact, well, after I sold the magazine, I uh, founded a company called Sports Market Promotions, and I did sporting events for national television programs. Uh, specifically Wide World of Sports and uh, CBS Sports in Action and NBC Sports. Uh, But I learned how to do that from meeting all the publishers of the magazines that um, fronted those uh, activities or sports and saw where the opportunities were. As an example, I had a friend who still lives here in Laguna Beach, Gavin Tripp, and he came to me, and I was doing Hang 10 in those days. Um, when I sold the magazine, I went to work with Hang 10 and Duke Boyd there. Mm-hmm. Then Duke sold it, and I stayed on for a while until he and I started up uh, with some other guys. Uh, I was one of the founders of Lightning Bolt Company, mm-hmm. and we carried on there. But those were uh, interesting times, and uh, with Gavin Tripp, we, he brought, wanted to bring motocross. There's a, you know you know the Grand Prix car, the race car, the Grand Prix circuit. There yeah. was a Grand Prix motocross circuit and oh, America okay. wasn't on it. So I said, well, there's an opportunity. Let's put that on Wide Rule of Sports, bring the World Grand Prix to America. We built a track with a guy who owned land down in Carlsbad, and that was on Wide World for about seven years. Wow. And um, meanwhile, I did other things after the Olympics. You know, when the Olympic game goes on and you see all the ski racers and you Mm -hmm. get to know uh, these these racers. Well, I grabbed all the girls, brought them to America and did a head-to-head first women's professional ski racing. Hmm. Uh, It also went to Wide World of Sports and they loved it because they had the men and Bobby Addy, who was very generous, he was going, R.G., I always wanted to do that. I was planning to do the girls. And I said, well, you can... Come on in and help me. Yeah. And he did. Cool. And he turned me on to his equipment guy and the best ice truck drivers. And, you know, <laughs> cause we were in blizzards all the time. And uh, we did a number of those races, but they were also good television stuff because America had seen, oh, somebody like a Kiki Cutter, maybe you yeah. remember her. She... Uh, they all knew her and now here she is racing in the first women's professional races and so I did a lot of that stuff um, including the World Skateboard Championships Uh, same guy in Carlsbad he gave us another side of the mountain and we built a skateboard park with a downhill and a um, a freestyle and a slalom run and all that and uh, kind of a funny story was they I got a call from him after we signed the contract. Went to New York, got that together, and uh, they called up and he goes, "Well, R.G., I don't think we're going to be able to do this. The guys upstairs say that it's, we don't. Wide rule of Sports doesn't cover sandlot backyard sports. You know, uh, you don't have your uh, a sanctioning body. There's no NBA or NFL or something behind this to make it legit. Well." Sometimes you're quick on your feet and I said, "Well, oh, you don't know about the Ra- Skateboard Racing Association? And went back and a guy who's no longer with us, Tommy Padaka, made him the president of the Pro-Am Skateboard Racing Association. My art director made a logo and we stuck it on everything and they said, oh, we didn't know about the Pro-Am Skateboard Racing. They put us on the air, and That's we. That's Yeah, well, they we had to have a sanctioning body, so we gave them one. Yeah. They wanted to do the event, but they also wanted to point to an association. And if something goes wrong, it wasn't Wide World that did it; right. it was that association. Right, right. So I had figured that out because I'd been doing other sporting events, and again, that all came out of my background at Peterson.
0: Can I ask you about the Lightning Bolt era a little bit? Sure. What, how did that begin? Who was involved with you in the very beginning? And I think of it as being existing in Hawaii. Were you, uh, was it based there? Where, well, what's the story?
1: Yeah, the, the story was um, Jerry Lopez and Jack Shipley um, had the brand in a surf shop uh, in Honolulu. And we're making lightning bolt boards. Well, we were doing uh, Hang Ten in those days, and in California. In California, and we saw Duke sold it. I was working for Ford after he left. He went. He moved to Aspen, and he was. I was still working for Hang Ten, and um, we noticed something that when all the guys came from, say, South Africa, Australia. Uh, it really didn't matter. They came to Lopez to get a board for Hawaii. You know, you need a board that fits the wave, and their beach board for Bondi wasn't really something you want to ride a pipeline. Yeah. And so they all started buying and getting. Uh, and Jerry and Jack were smart. They would work whatever kind of deal to get these national champions onto uh, the Lightning Bolt board, and we so we saw that, and then they. They wrote them in all the contests that the magazines covered, and then they flew home, got off the airplane, and the local press says, here's our national champion just back from Hawaii, and he's standing there with a Lightning Bolt board. Lightning Bolt was popular and well-known around the world. Mm -hmm. And so we made a deal with Jerry and Jack, formed a company uh, called uh, The Bolt Corporation, and Lightning Bolt International was our foreign business and uh, started the Lightning Bolt Company. Jerry and Jack were shareholders and had monthly salaries to work on it. Uh, you know, in surfing you have to uh, be true to your roots. The guys will uh, figure you out real quick. If yeah. you're ripping off Jerry and Jerry's not in favor of his brand being with you, uh, that doesn't work. Sure. Uh, or very long. Right. Um,
0: so that's how it, it all got started. And were you guys distributing the surfboards, or was it a clothing in mind, or how? how the was truth the idea? about it
1: is, we were a licensing corporation. Okay. We made no product, never did make a, any item. Mm-hmm. We licensed out the name. Mm-hmm. Jerry and Jack, being uh, wonderful guys who they were, Hawaiian uh, surfers, didn't know anything about patents and trademarks yeah. and copyrights. Well, we had lived uh, with all that with the magazines and with Hang 10, and so we registered the name and gave them part of the company that owned it and then licensed it worldwide. Um, we had you know every product that you can think of, menswear, womenswear, uh, children's wear, wax, uh, I remember skateboards, bodyboards, surfboards, almost any product jewelry line did mm-hmm. really well uh, that was tapping into the women's market and we even had <laughs> items that guys wore they had a little bracelet that was a lightning bolt sh- sh- just snapped onto their wrist and that made them part of the bolt you know story yeah. and um, so
0: those were all manufactured elsewhere but by would...
1: licensees right we would license them to use our trademark and they'd pay us a percentage of the volume right we would do the a marketing program and the advertising program, which was also a percentage of what they sold went to form that budget to, sure. to do it worldwide. Then we'd get on the plane uh, with our art director, it was a guy that I love to travel with and was so talented, Bobby McGregor, and we'd fly into uh, Japan or uh, South Africa or Australia and lay out a program next year. We're going to we're going to specialize in Mexico, and here's the Mexican colors. You know, mm-hmm. you got your green, your red. You know, and here's the story, and we're going to do certain things with the neck, and here's the logo we're going to put on it. Then the whole world that was in Lightning Bolt would do the same thing. So we run one ad in Surfer, or Surfing, and it would. Work for everybody around the world, and we put the bottom. We'd say find products found in, and then right. all, list all the licensees. Sure. Now it's, it sounds uh, pretty simple today because everybody's doing it, but in those days nobody did it, and we kind of founded that, as well as the license agreement that signed everybody up. The reason we got to fly around a lot was that in a contract we take our brand. Uh, our logo uh, you need to fly us down there once or twice a year to inspect operations. Yeah. There's also some uh, parts of uh, patent and trademark law that says you're obligated to do that to make sure the quality under that mark is yeah. of high quality or a similar uh, a consistent quality and so McGregor would write up the program he and Duke would put it all together we'd get on the plane and fly around the world. We had about 10 or 12 round the world tickets a year Jeez. to go see everybody and spread the lightning bolt world. And they'd have a big party at, uh, the, I remember Welcome to Osaka for Jerry Lopez party one night. It was, that was really a fun one. And Margot Oberg in those days was the world women's champion. She came with us. And then we'd go visit the stores, their key mm-hmm. stores. And we'd sit and sign autographs and people would line up around the block. Jerry was, uh, a rock star. Yeah, and he really still is when sure. people see him. It's like you know, and he did very well. I remember when we taught Jerry how to sign his autograph. I, I wonder how Jerry will remember that story. Yeah, but he had to sign so many autographs, and it, so we had him sit down, and he was good. He he got it, and practice. He's got that now. You maybe you recognize his his G this way and his L. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we spent a lot of time making sure he signed it so that people could read it. Okay. And instead of just a like that, and people would there's no marketing involved in that. Yeah. And uh, he got it, did it, and still uses it. Uh, but those were all part of developing a brand under a licensing corporation.
0: So that brand still exists, obviously, and I know they have a store in Venice now, a retail store. Is, do you have any involvement with the company? Or? No, I
1: don't. Uh, I I helped out a little bit a few years back by showing them some of the old presentations of logos and a, a children's brochure which was all t-shirts and mm. said, here's the designs we were doing back in
0: those days. Well, what happened, did it um, just slowly come to a halt or was there any uh, breaking point for the company, or? Yeah, there was
1: uh, a time when our major licensee uh, broke off from us and um, started a brand with Jerry called, what was it called, Pipeline, appropriately. Yeah. And it ended up competing with us. Uh, We developed a second brand called Starbolt, and Mark Richards, who had four world championships and we thought nobody in the world would ever win more than four, right? right. <laughs> well there's that story is over. And uh, but we did Star Bolt so we could sell it to in those days the term was the mass market or the mass sure. merchandisers. Penny, Sears, Wards, got Star Bolt, the better stores or the higher quality, higher price, uh, stores and surf shops and boutiques got Lightning Bolt, got so we did dual marketing, because once you put your brand of Lightning Bolt into J.C. Penney's, the brand doesn't have the mystique or the power and so forth, so we developed two. They saw that, thought it was wonderful, convinced Jerry uh, and for some reason that's Jerry's story, um, but they started the pipeline and competed with us. And then
0: for all, the mass market.
1: Yeah, and right. we all kind of went our, our different direction. And that's when uh, Roy Russell and uh, Mark Richards became the heroes of Lightning Bolt. Yeah. And uh, of course, we had then had Sean Thompson and a bunch of the other guys before they started their brand. All those guys were our writers in those days, and they looked smart guys, of course, and they looked at what we were doing and said, God, I'm a world champion now. I'm writing and promoting Lightning Bolt. Why don't I do my own brand? Mm-hmm. And they followed our format and uh, in our footsteps, and even our license agreement because mm-hmm. it worked.
0: It's really sophisticated um, marketing techniques and business strategies that you guys were implementing. Were you following any uh, maybe non-surf brand-related models that existed? No, not really.
1: There there was, there was not anybody that we could point to. Um, our competitors, and the way Hang 10 got started, was there was... Uh, we had Catalina, Janssen, and McGregor. Those were the big three, and they were advertising and surfer. And they did some ads with us along the way, but they were the big ones. Surfers, we look on the beach and they were, the big thing was to cut off Levi's, put a piece of wax in your back pocket and surf. And so Duke designed a board, uh, a, a surf trunk, the first board shorts, out of fast drying uh, materials. He got rid of cotton thread that rotted in the salt water and put in nylon. Uh, the wax pocket had a little grommet in the back so the water and sand would run out. Uh, instead of having this big balloon thing mm-hmm. and your, when you did it with Levi's, your rabbit ears were all your pockets were turned inside out. Right. And he made, a, made that first short, and then the rest of the world came along. Jeff Hackman joined up with... Um, Parrish? Uh, yeah, yeah, all those guys. Uh, and uh, Bob McKnight and Jeff got together and did the Quicksilver thing. Uh, Just from memory, uh, I think it was about eight years, Quicksilver didn't make any products except board shorts and T-shirts. And I remember going to meetings, Duke and I would go in, because we knew those guys, and uh, we had been successful. And uh, talking with them and bringing them along about how to build a brand and all that, and of course the rest we know, it became very... uh, very large, I mean, yeah. to do a billion dollars, um, we never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Now we wrote, For us, we wrote a rocket ship with Lightning Bolt, we went from zero to about 120 million in nine months. Really? It was, well, that was again by being able to scope out that, hey, the world already knows about this. They, everybody adores Jerry, and yeah. he's the best athlete. And uh, so all we had to do is say, hey, we're the lightning bolt guys, by our products. And sure. it just took off. That was a, a real rocket ship for us. And uh, Fortunately, I had the um, paragraph in there where they provided us with the visit, seven days a year, yeah. hotel, food, everything, sure. to come in. And the Patents and Trademark Office liked that because we were policing our brand and doing an inspection to make sure it was a consistent quality. And they let us keep the... The trademark, uh, that's how they take them away from companies, you know. Yeah. There was somebody who's real big now just lost their trademark uh, because they weren't doing it right. Well, that's not this story.
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, maybe it's my own ignorance um, in not knowing, but there's the five kind of big surf brands, and I think of Rusty as being the first who kind of took the surfboard as being the tip of the spear and expounded upon that to develop clothing and to take it internationally. But it really seems like, obviously, Lightning Bolt was the first one to yeah, do it. Yeah, and before apparently.
1: that it was Hang 10.
0: Hang 10, Yeah, right? But that wasn't but surf. Bo- that wasn't based on a surfboard, a surfboard, was it?
1: no. No, it was, it was one of our company. products and the name Hang 10 was the board short was the start of that. Everybody uh, always says, well, what does hang 10 mean? And then you have this, we had this Pat story that we made sure everybody said a consistent one, of running to the board, front of the board, and balancing with the water on the back and putting your toes over the edge. And that would be a 10, you could hang five. And then there was Paul Strauss, Cheater Five. And um, that was the universe of uh, hanging 10. Yeah, And that's how the brand came together then
0: which Um, I mean a brand needs a story and that's a fantastic yeah yeah
1: and the two little feet they were wonderful
0: yeah
1: and one of the things we did that I'm still doing uh when I get a chance is we took a high-powered camera and we had to make sure we had the embroidery of those little feet and then focused in on where you could see every thread and every Mm -hmm. needle hole in it and that became our logo yeah and we did it in gold thread and in gold print on on or kind of a tan background, so it jumped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that was part of a licensing program, presenting your, your mark in a, in a way that people recognized it consistently and then licensed it around the world and policed to make sure they all used it mm-hmm. the exact way we wanted it, because that was part of the program.
0: It's interesting to me, like I think the success of your story or the various stories that you've told, is the balance that you're able to strike between really kind of savvy and yet precise business acumen, but still being really true to the core of surfing. Yeah. I feel like a lot of these other brands we've discussed, they've kind of alienated the core in chasing the profit motive, you know? And it sounds like those brands that you name, I think of them as still retaining a lot of core legitimacy while being able to be profitable.
1: Yeah, that's again a a part of the balance. We just talked about a hang 10. That's really playing the balance. You gotta Mm -hmm. have the right balance on the back of the board, be on the front, you gotta do both or you don't get the ride. Yeah. And um, that's what we did with, uh, we were the first ones to do, or Duke was the first one to do surf teams. He, created that little patch that went on the shorts. And if you got to be a Hang 10 rider and had the patch and got to appear in the ads, well that also gave the brand the credibility as part of that balance. Then the stores would buy us because we were legit, and the surfers would promote us because they got free trunks and they got to have the Hang 10 patch and be on the back cover of Surfer. So there was a balance going on. And in the meantime, behind the the scene, you know, the wizard in the closet was um, the, the business side of it, uh, patents and trademark offices around the world, um, and the financial aspect of what you do in a foreign country as uh, oh, being a resident company, or are you a company here with um, uh, an agent? Oh, agent, oh, now we're going to charge you 17% tax but if we had an assister, they were looking through the books in New Zealand and Australia, they could never find the word assister. No, we don't have any agents. And the whole world was set up around agent mm. and we made them assisters. And once they were assisters, we didn't follow into tax categories and we, be, we saved 16% of our Amazing. worldwide income by changing the term. Amazing. So anyway, you're, you're right. There, there was a side of staying legit with the, with the guys on the beach and um, they were brought in to be a part of a, a program that uh, was valid and supported surfing and supported them and, uh, so that they could continue to surf. And on the other side, we had to have a financial and a legal uh, base to allow us to license the trademark mm-hmm. and a legal side to own trademarks and what you had to do and so we got to learn all that Yeah. so we could have the, the foundation for the
0: rest of it. Bringing us back to the ride uh huh. you have these thousands of photographs were those photographs previously published?
1: Some of them. Some of them were. Some of them um, like in the the layout, we haven't completed that until we got our fundraising together, but we would start off with a cover of Surfing Magazine and then feature some of the articles in it. There was a day in 1969, in December, on Maui at Honolulu Bay. The North Shore closed out all the way across. We got on the plane, went over there. And um, It was like eight straight days of the most beautiful surf we've ever seen, Hmm. and and, um, the guys I still talk to about that there was never been a day that they can remember that was as great. But the pictures were wonderful, and we called it Maui Outrageous. Uh, In my new book, I'm bringing the pictures out that have been shown before and some that have never been seen, Um, and we called it uh, Honolulu Bay, another planet. And that was the height of the hippie era and everybody had long hair and Mm -hmm. uh, short boards and riding big waves. I remember uh, one day where everybody was sitting on the rocks there at the point watching. There was only like one guy out and it was perfect weight. I mean, perfect, but nobody could lift their arms anymore. They had just done six days of perfect. And so we all just sat there and watched Wow. Waves for a day. And then the other magic of that story uh, about being another planet. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the band. Um, oh, the, the Steve Miller band happened oh, yeah. to be on Maui and then and they were cutting their new album. So we met them in a bar and did all the talk and all that stuff. And you guys are riding out there and all that. I so, said, well, we're documenting for the magazine. And so they worked, we got into a collaboration deal where they worked on their music during the day. Our guys surfed, we shot pictures. A young man named Jackie Dunn, his mother ran the uh, Kodak Quick Tourist photograph business. We'd run in there at a certain time she set, gave her all of our pictures. She'd develop them for because her boy was in the pictures. Sure. And then we'd go over to a certain location and they'd have a big screen up. Steve Miller Band would come in and play their new music for us. And we would show the surf from that day. Well, every surfer on the island would show up and we'd have these big nightly luau's. The next morning, it was like eight straight Everyone went out and did it all again and they'd wow. come in with their music. In fact, I'm, I've got a note that I'm gonna to try to see if I can find uh, those guys from the, uh, Steve Miller, and, and see if he remembers the story the way I remember it, because we're talking about 70, oh, that's 30, 40, 44 years
0: ago. Sure.
1: And uh, I probably embellished my thought on that. Maybe, yeah. Then, you know? Do you but have, I have the pictures.
0: I was going to say, you have photos <laughs> yeah. of the actual evening events with yeah. them playing music and the photos in the background? I don't
1: have, I don't have that. Uh, we didn't have that kind of photography in those days, yeah. you know. Um, but I do have the story and I have uh, in the magazine, I mm-hmm. have one of the issues of that thing. and um, we're talking about those are the days where everybody would the guys would go up on the crater and wait for the spaceships to come at night. Mm. And there were all kinds of stories about how many landed and all that. Really and back <laughs> in the water in the morning, you know jeez, um, but those were. That's why I called it another planet. And yeah. In those days, and that art, original article was called um, Maui Outrageous, and it was the taxi cab driver and the bartender and all those were the guys who surfed. And that's again, the looking in the mirror of what the great athletes of the surfer athletes of today, in their health program, these guys would be drunk all night, run out and go surfing in the same surf, mm-hmm. and um, the the lifestyle, and of course there was no uh, professional tour for Mm -hmm. guys to be uh, paid to surf in it and to win prize money at it. Um, It was uh, again, it was just a different world and Maui in that that period of time, the winter of 69-70 was um, a very special
0: time. Tell me about the book itself is it it's a coffee table book is it mainly comprised of photographs or is there going to be uh editorial well
1: the way i vision it right now uh, and without a lot of uh because i don't have my art director in line um jeff Devine has been helping me put the pictures together and as you know he's a fabulous photo editor not just a photographer sure and um It would start off with the cover of the magazine uh, under that section uh, that was the Maui, Mm -hmm. and the cover of the magazine, and then a a block of copy on the right that would talk about what we just chatted about and all that, and then you flip the page and it goes into a photograph story with captions. Gotcha. I'm not out to win a Pulitzer Prize. I'm really doing is um, documenting Uh, a historical period of time that was so important to surfing and to other sports. Like I said, they'll have um, the surfing magazine and those kinds of stories in addition to uh, the first motocross in America, the big women's thing, the first uh, full contact martial arts. uh, Mm -hmm. And I'll have the programs from those events, the the little blurb about why this was important and then go into the photos on it. And that's how we'll do
0: it. And what is the time frame that you're looking to cover with the book? Uh, 60s and 70s. Okay, that seems like a, a, a lot of content.
1: Well, it is, but you take, uh, there might have been 30, 40 magazines and you take one of them and pull one chapter out or one yeah. article and make it. I'm trying not to do it by chapters, I'm calling them sections, mm-hmm. just to make it a little bit different, like it's, this is really an important section of the book. Uh, and so we'll have all those um, extreme sports before the X Games came in, mm-hmm. and um, I'm not saying we were the foundation for them, but if you notice quickly, all those events are in the X Games, mm-hmm. except for the skiing aspect. Uh, a lot of motorcycle, a lot of car racing, a lot of, you know, all this stuff, and
0: skateboarding. And... So, if I could just kind of reiterate my understanding of the book, when you write the article in the magazine originally, you're kind of limited by certain constraints. Is the objective of the book to just kind of expand upon and elaborate upon some of those stories and to include some of the images that weren't published
1: yeah, originally? Yeah, a, a... A bit of that, but it's mostly to highlight those events uh, that, like the first Mm shortboard, that story of midget showing a a board. That was a historical time for surfing, and we all know nobody. There is longboarding, of course, but the world didn't go back to getting rid of shortboards. So it was a real pivotal time, and the Maui article was the same kind of thing. And there's others that'll be like that, the motocross, the first international motocross event in America. And, uh, we did one called the Hang 10 Funny Car 500. Mm-hmm. Went to funny to drag racing and noticed that it was a lot of the uh, top fuel cars would race. And then in the middle, like an intermission, they'd bring out some funny cars, and they'd run them down the track and everybody'd cheer, and then they go back. And I said, let's do it different. Let's bring out a... a top fuel car, run it down at halftime and have all the rest of the race be funny cars. Mm -hmm. Well, that was really uh, I mean, it's so simple. Yeah. But nobody had done it. And now what do they do? They're all funny car races. And and then they have a division for top fuel at the nationals and all that. But it started a trend. And those are the kind of things that I want to cover in the book. Mm -hmm. that How we kind of were at the base of doing it differently, and that attracted the, the television guys, because they didn't want to keep showing the same things over and over again, and when they got a chance to do something like that, uh, whether it's the women skiers or the funny car guys, we had a car, uh, the, rider, uh, the driver's name was Sush Matsubara, and he rode the, the Hang 10 uh, car, mm-hmm. funny car. And he would go to the shopping centers, you know, you go in there and there's a car out there and he's signing autographs and we'd ship him around the country. And he loved it and got all kinds of contracts from spark plugs to whatever yeah, guys sure. do. And uh, it was a good fit. So those were, those were what, what the editorial package in this uh, magazine will be. Um,
0: Where is, um, what do you need? via the kickstarter project what do you need to complete the book and what's your timeline look like to complete the book
1: well they they give you uh periods of time 30-day or a 60-day run of your uh, offer uh, or your project and give uh, backers the opportunity to make pledges right it's not like they get to own part of the no um, the book or uh, ownership uh, but it's for people who want to see that historical book come out, and they it's, they call it bringing it to life. Uh-huh. So you lay out your story, and you see if there's enough backers to bring it to life. Once you get the money, you put it together. My goal is to have it shipping to stores uh, by November, so it's in in stores and selling for holiday business. I've been doing a little research and. Uh, Within reason, uh, September through January is about 80% of the book sales are done. Uh, and so I don't want to miss that period and then come out with a book when it's dead. Yeah. And then wait a year to see if anybody's going to buy it. Sure. So I'm really targeting getting it done at that time. And um, so it's called The Ride. And you can find it on Kickstarter. And... Um, also, you can go to my name, Richard Graham, on Facebook, and look up under my uh, homepage. You'll find the ride is there. Okay. And a little slogan we have, it's a rare historical surf image, uh, imagery uh, and a great place to catch up with old friends and legendary surfers like-minded surfing and extreme sports heritage enthusiasts are get gathering around to get this book out. So I'm not relying on just a surfer or a funny car driver. I'm trying to get all those people that know some of this history in their own little special interest world uh, to bring it to life.
0: Yeah. And uh, so that's what the ride is all about. Awesome. Well, I hope that we can help in that endeavor.
1: Well, just just giving me some exposure. And uh, frankly, I've thought of a few things today talking to you that I haven't done yet. So yeah. I'm going to get home with a cup of coffee and uh, write down some other thoughts about what should be in this book. Perfect.
0: Well, thank you. Thanks for being so open, too. And uh, really, I appreciate your thoughtfulness. I mean, you really gave me some amazing stories. It was like enlightening. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
1: Everybody, you know what I was talking about. I mean, everybody, you would know exactly what I was talking about. I'm talking about that. Die- die-
0: we'll have a link to Richard's Kickstarter campaign at surfsplendorpodcast.com. And make sure to leave a comment about today's show you'll also find all 42 past episodes of surf splendor everything is archived for free on our website in itunes and stitcher if you listen to our show in itunes or stitcher please make sure to rate and review the show that helps others to find it if you enjoy surf splendor and you'd like to invest in the show's future Help us build our audience by simply sharing it with a friend. The larger the audience we have, the larger the guests we will be able to attract. We want Slater. We want the CEOs. So help us build this thing. Tell your friends about us and make sure to interact on social media where you can find us at Surf Splendor. Thank you, Richard Graham, for sharing your story. Thank you, listeners, for your interest in our show. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor saying... Until next week, well, aloha. working like on the of